Good day, everyone. Welcome to This is 42 podcast. My name is Desh. This week, I'm speaking to Jesse Morton. Jesse used to be a jihadist. He's listed as America's first jihadist. This truly was a completely mind-altering conversation. We speak about his entire journey of just being a teenager, then being into psychedelic drugs and becoming a drug dealer and eventually turning into a jihadist. We speak about some of his actions that even today ISIS continue to use. We speak about how he came out of this. We speak about what he is doing right now. This conversation is a must-hear conversation. I'm not just saying it because I'm hosting this podcast. This completely blew my mind. And this is coming from somebody who made a film called Islam and the Future of Tolerance. I truly hope you enjoy this conversation. And if you like it, please subscribe and spread the message. Here's Jesse. Thank you for coming on the podcast, mate. Uh, thank you for having me. It's an honor. So, um, Jesse is a newly adopted name or was that your birth name? I was born Jesse Curtis Morton, uh, but became Yunus Abdullah Muhammad after converting. And now I prefer Jesse Morton because um, I basically killed my uh, self and was full of self-loathing and self-hating. Uh, and uh, Islam gave me a different identity. But in order to heal, I had to learn how to love the person that I was born as. And so the name change has actually been significant both as a process of my radicalization and as a process of my de-radicalization as well. So going from Jesse to Eunice and back to Jesse. It, was there a specific reason when you picked the name you did? So Eunice Abdullah Muhammad has implications because it was used to radicalize me. So I found the teachings of Islam in jail after converting. And I was taught by a Moroccan veteran of the Afghan Soviet Jihad, um, the basics of Islam. He told me when I told him I was Muslim that I wasn't yet Muslim because I didn't know how to pray and I didn't know the five pillars and I didn't understand the Quran. And after about 30 days of indoctrination and making me memorize how to pray in Arabic, he told me that I should go into the jailhouse shower and make what they call ghusl. And you have to wash every inch of your body and every square spot of your body because when you convert to Islam, essentially you're a baby. All of your previous sins are forgiven and you're basically born anew. The convert gets this extra blessing. Um, and so he told me that when I came out of the shower, I would be a new baby and I would be starting a new life and that he would give me a new name. So for someone who had grown to hate themselves and who had grown to be full of really you know, trauma to the degree that it was incredibly severe at this moment, it was an opportunity for me to press a reset button. And so Eunice is Jonah in the Bible or the one who was swallowed by the belly of the whale. And so he said, you're in the belly of the beast, you're in jail now. And Jonah actually was someone who ran away from God's messages for his entire life. And then when he accepted God's message, having been rescued, he preached to the people of Nineveh and he was one of the only successful messengers because all of his people converted. So go tell your people about Islam and use your powers and your strength, uh, strengths in negativity and apply them to the positive. That's what made Jonah 
or Eunice Powerful. And Abdullah is a slave of Allah. You're really literally nothing. You're just a slave. Um, there's nothing special about you. You're just dust. The only thing that you have of value is that Allah might guide you. And then he said, Muhammad is the best name in the world. So I attach Muhammad at the end because this is the man that you're supposed to emulate. And then he described Muhammad as someone who uh, was not turned the other cheek like Jesus, but was one who gave us uh, every uh, single thing from how to use the bathroom to how to wage jihad. That is incredibly powerful. Mm-hmm. I can see how that uh, that must have had an impact. Okay, uh, my next question was going to be what inspired you to turn to Islam? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, part of it is almost explained. <laughs> like w- w- when you have such powerful terminology given mm-hmm. to somebody mm-hmm. what was your how old were you when you uh, converted to islam so i first got interested in islam at 19 during my very right. first experience in county jail when i read the autobiography of malcolm x so i started to uh explore islam and i officially converted at the age of 20 um largely because of what i perceived to be a miracle on the streets of philadelphia right um um Tell me a little bit about getting into that county jail situation. Mm-hmm. What was your childhood like? Why, why did you end up there? So I grew up in a strange situation in rural Pennsylvania. My father is, I'm actually a descendant on my father's side of Samuel Adams and um, sons and daughters of the American Revolution, a very privileged Boston elite family that ended up in New York City or actually Cranford, New Jersey. Uh, my father's dad was set to be the youngest supreme court justice in the state of new jersey ever but he died out of nowhere from lung cancer used to smoke like three packs a day when my father was a senior in high school and it altered the trajectory of my father away from privileged jersey kid to countercultural beatnik so he decided that he wanted to move to rural pennsylvania and go to a liberal arts college and learn pennsylvania woodwork construction and sort of drop off the grid and he did by finding my mother who was a very poor working class woman at a uh, pantry uh, in rural Pennsylvania. And uh, they had me. And in those days, when you uh, knocked a woman up, you had to marry them. There was much more norm. Uh, And it was really the impregnation of my mother that forced the marriage. That was a very, very, very bad marriage for both people. My father started to commit adultery and probably always had been committing adultery. Uh, on my mother and it essentially over time drove her insane and as she was a mother in the household she started to take out her rage and frustration on her children Uh, I was the oldest of three and abusers typically choose one child not to abuse so my mother started to do things that progressively got worse and worse Um, and we're not talking just spankings we're talking biting on inner thighs we're talking pulling chunks of hair out of heads talking choking to the point where you could see finger marks and I'm showing my father this and I'm showing my grandmother this and no one's intervening and then my mother starts as my sister gets older to beat my sister too so I adopt this concept of self-sacrifice that life's meaning is suffering and that I'm willing to suffer for the sake of protecting someone else and that's my sister and it's very much the uh, sense of injustice and the willing to sacrifice that ran congruent with what I adopted when I became a jihadist it was like I want to kill myself for something bigger and so i developed this mentality and when society didn't intervene i ran i ran away three months after i told a guidance counselor that my mother had pinched my cheeks shut so far tight together that i had literally had been experiencing pain for two weeks as a result of the she used to pull my gums out 
Uh, and uh, and I told the guidance counselor, and he never intervened. And then I knew that my society wouldn't protect me. So I was drifting around, sort of uh, traveling uh, with the hippies after running away to the streets. Out, out, I started out back at Port Authority in New York City in Manhattan. Learned how to peddle, you know, marijuana to tourists. Met some hippies and ended up traveling and, and, and escaping. But the life of counterculturalism on the left wasn't healthy for me because I started to use hallucinogenics. I started to, you know, I always smoked weed every day for quite a few years. But started to progress into narcotics, and I found myself getting arrested in state college at a uh, at a at a Grateful Dead show, uh, and going to the to the local county jail. And they, in the morning, they woke me up and they said. You want to go get a book? Uh, it's library day. And I was like, sure. So I go to the basement of the jailhouse library in a really impoverished county. So it's all like Western novels and romance novels, and it's just complete trash. But the one thing I found that was of interest was the autobiography of Malcolm X. And I just had this sort of moment of catharsis as I started to read it. And I was intrigued, and then I got to the chapter where Malcolm goes to Mecca and prays with white people and totally changes his non-Orthodox version of Islam and adopts Sunni Islam. And I was like, this is exactly the life I want to live. I want to be an activist. But it still was largely just a projection of that same archetype or that same personality that had developed around the abuse and the trauma at home. Um, How do you go from learning about Islam through the lens of Malcolm X in an American jail to you already mentioned that you're a former jihadi. Uh, The term jihadi is, uh, you know, it's a very strong term. It it has certain connotations. How do you go from following Malcolm X to a jihadi? What happened there? I mean, uh, so Malcolm... We don't know how Malcolm would have felt about Osama bin Laden and the war on terror, but for us... It was a clear case where Malcolm would have supported it because of the by any means necessary speech, right? What we don't understand is that a lot of the rhetoric that was completely polarizing and hateful of Malcolm was mitigated and altered when he went to Mecca. And so Malcolm came back very differently. So I like to say now that I understood the religion of Islam through the lens of Malcolm X before he found the religion of Muhammad. And so that what I practiced was much closer to a uh, version of uh, Farrakhanism or Elijah Muhammadism um, and it's uh, fighting hate with hate uh, as opposed to the Prophet Muhammad who attacked the ills and afflictions of his society at a higher order of, of consciousness and I think that that's what Malcolm learned when he went to Mecca today so it's really hard to frame people without understanding the nuances of their age and again a traumatized brain loves to view the world in very simplistic narratives. So not able to recognize the nuanced differences between Malcolm pre-trip to Mecca and post-trip to Mecca, and not able to understand that you can't study a religion that's 1,400 years old through the lens of an activist that didn't even speak the language it was revealed in, that you have to go back to the sources and you have to be scholarly if you're going to profess scholarly opinions and promote the idea that Islam justifies the killing of civilians. So... It really was, again, an adoption of a external ideology that suit my preconceived projection of rage and frustration, probably with self, but also with the society around me. Right. Um, I urge everyone who's listening to this to definitely check out the Cafe Classroom uh, lecture um, with Jesse. Um, That'll give you a bit more context into this story. Getting back to your life as a jihadist, 
when you were preaching certain ideologies, did it? Did you ever put it in a context of sort of your family and the friends you had, or was it quite binary, us versus them? I don't know if I understand the question completely, but so you know, you came from a dysfunctional family, yes. but a family nonetheless, right? Yes. Um, and it's in the West. So when jihadi ideologies generally have this sort of view, mm-hmm. it's uh, us versus them. Right. And, you know, Islam is under attack. Mm-hmm. Yes. And us Muslims have to challenge this narrative. But when you were uh, out there talking about these matters, your family that mm-hmm. you left mm-hmm. and your friends the hippies mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. none of them were muslim right so i grew to hate them okay. right so i grew to reject everything that they stood for um uh and never really had much contact with my family for many years from the time that i ran away at 16 i had to reestablish that um but they represented the embodiment of everything that i had come to hate so my identity literally merged with the muslims my wife was moroccan my children uh, are raised with Arabic culture, not American culture, so to say. Everything that was culturally quote unquote American was frowned upon. And Muslims that imitated westernized interpretations of religion and uh, were also frowned upon and looked as either hypocritic, uh, hypocrites or apostates altogether. Right. So, 2011, you threatened South Park creators. 2010. 2010. Yes. Uh, I- What's the story been, uh, behind the uh, South Park incident? Okay, so we ran a very popular website, and of course it's not about how many people are dead in terrorism, it's about how many people are watching. One of the main uh, mechanisms for recruitment was to get the mainstream media to cover the controversial things that we would do. And we had grown more and increasingly, increasingly willing to test the bounds of free speech. And I had a young uh, adherent who I recruited to be a propagandist, a very wealthy elite kid, grew up in private schools, richest county in the United States, white kid, converts to Islam and within 30 days is talking directly with Anurad Aldeki and becoming radical. The fastest case of radicalization we had seen up to that point. This is why, this is where trends in jihadism are transitioning. And so this guy is given access to my website as an administrator uh, because he's putting in massive hours. He is go hard or go home type mentality, completely starts to just live this 24 hours a day. And he's helpful because uh, he gives me an increased number of outputs on my website and he's really good at attracting attention. So South Park is about to go into its 200th episode. So there's a big fanfare around that. And on Entertainment Tonight or one of those extra type shows, they ask what's in store for the 200th episode. And they say, well, we're going to do some things that are considered sacrilegious. And they hint that they're going to portray the Prophet Muhammad. So to preempt that, uh, we uh, posted on the website a picture of Theo Van Gogh, who was killed for making a film that was deemed anti-Islamic and was killed by a jihadist on the street of Amsterdam with a knife in his back while he was riding a bike. And so we posted a picture of him dead on an Amsterdam street and said that uh, Trey Stone and, and, and uh, Matt Parker, uh, or is it Matt Stone and Trey Parker, the, uh, the, uh, the creators of South Park would likely end up like Theo Van Gogh. But that wasn't enough to break the law. What broke the law was the fact that we posted likely addresses to where they could be found and where they could be housed. And so ultimately that was the communication of a threat that um, 
surpassed for the first time the uh, the First Amendment protection of free expression. And uh, four months after that, after a large amount of controversy that made our website completely notorious, um, and we ran for the top 10 websites in the world for about a month and stayed in the top 10,000 websites in the world after that until we were disbanded. Uh, my co-conspirator tried to travel to join al-Shabaab, al-Qaeda's often in Somalia, and I knew the time was up, so I got on a plane with my family, my newborn son and my pregnant wife, and we moved to her country of Morocco to try to figure out how the hell we could run from the from what was clear to uh, us about to become an indictment from my arrest. Right. From that moment in Morocco, you did end up going to jail in Morocco. I stayed in Morocco for about nine months before they issued the indictment. Right. And when I went to Morocco, the Arab Spring broke out. So here I am. I have to survive by doing private tutoring with the millennial Arab youth, who I loathe because they're westernized. But in the context of the Arab Spring, there's a lot of hope and there's a lot of energy. It's a very curious and conscious time to be alive in a space. And really, long story short, I start to recognize the totalitarian nature of the Islamist agenda. And I start to contemplate this idea of top-down change versus bottom-up change. And I start to actually become enthralled with um, the Arab millennial modernist culture. I like the idea that they love Islam, but they don't take it that seriously. But that they really want just an opportunity to think and express themselves and to have elected governments that are not corrupt. And when you live around in Morocco and you have this conspiracy theory where the United States is creating the oppression of the Middle East by arming these authoritarian regimes, you realize how little impact America actually has there and that this is actually an indigenous uh, result uh, of, uh, of of corruption and flaws inside of inside of that uh, th- those societies. There's much more independence than I think I recognized, and I really started to have doubts. Although it, deradicalization, just like radicalization, is a process, not an event. But what is the American indictment that led you to jail over there? So after about eight months and them trying to lure me to come into the embassy so that they could arrest me and me not doing so. They just issued online an indictment. So one of the anti-Islamic bloggers uh, found the indictment online, and I opened my email box in the morning, and he's like, congratulations on the indictment, dickhead. And so I Googled my name, and I was like, okay, so you're wanted by the United States. And this was uh, about 10 days after Osama bin Laden was killed. So I was like, okay, well, this must be them making a move on uh, trying to eradicate this thing completely. And in fact, it was. And in fact, for the next several months, and maybe even up to a year, we figured the war on terror would wind down. Um, it took them uh, a couple weeks. I thought about going to Libya, where they were waging jihad against Gaddafi. But I made a prayer uh, called Salatul Istikara, which is when you have to make a decision, and then you look for a sign from God. And when I finished the prayer, uh, in accordance with the manner that it was performed by the Prophet, I turned around and both of my newborn sons were standing up in a crib looking at me pray. So I figured it, I was supposed to face the music. And it came out of a Salafi Jihadi mosque in Casablanca in the slums, and streets were empty, and uh, one policeman was on the street. And I walked about a block and uh, put my hands behind my back and went to Moroccan jail until they extradited me to the United States five months later and watched as uh, Syria became uh, the death knell of the uh, Arab Spring and 
and, and things started to get even more confusing. With time, so how long did you end up staying in prison? So I spent five months in Morocco and then I was flown home on a private American jet by FBI Secret Service and every other ABC agency. They put me in solitary confinement in Alexandria, Virginia for almost a year and it's then that they met me after I took a plea uh, where I had to do a debriefing process with the FBI and by that time, as a result of a guard taking me to the law library for 10 hour shifts four days a week and me getting into things like the Encyclopedia Britannica's great books of the Western world and the Western post-enlightenment philosophers and Thomas Paine and all of these things, going back into my cell and reading Islam through a different lens, the FBI met a very different person. And the first thing that happened was someone offered me information about a terrorist attack that was in prison with me and I was faced with the question of whether to tell or not and I informed them. So originally they sentenced me to 11 and a half years in prison but uh, my students started to appear in Syria. ISIS broke out. The war on terror clearly was not over. So from May 23rd, 2011 until March 1st, 2015, I was incarcerated. But I, was suppo- I should still technically be incarcerated today if my original sentence was upheld. They called me back in front of a judge and due to um, the nature and the degree of my cooperation, the judge let me go. How difficult was it for you to distance yourself from something that really gave you the personhood that you, you know, you embodied that? How difficult was it to distance yourself from that? So you have to transform your identity into something completely new in order to kill yourself that you hate. And then you have to learn that in order to remove that identity, which you clearly is not you, you have to learn how to love the person that you hated. And so I'm still on that trek, right? So really reconfiguring exactly who is Jesse Morton and what degree Yunus Abdullah Muhammad still exists in him, even if you think Yunus Abdullah Muhammad is gone, is something that is going to go on for the rest of my uh, my existence. Um, it's been a process. When I get out of prison, I was able to convince the jihadists that I had won on an appeal. And my old scholars welcomed me right back into the milieu and I was able to operate as an informant. So I was literally trying to de-radicalize while operating as a Salafi jihadist on a day-to-day basis in conjunction with the FBI. So, so how this do you, was I, awkward. Yeah. I, awkward is one way to put it. <laughs> so it, that was actually going to be my next question because I can imagine all those organizational ties you had, they would be still interested in working with you. So how do you navigate sort of disconnecting from those ties or do you still keep certain ties just to help the de-radicalization uh, uh, process hmm. so now that i work to combat uh, i i never wanted to go f- public i ended up becoming america's first former jihadist but i was outed by the washington post as an informant um after uh being accused of entrapping two muslims that were about to be headed in america there's a big problem here in the united states where every case the fbi intervenes is, is deemed to be entrapment and conspiracy and it's not the case but they tried to paint me that way in court and the defense attorneys gave my name and said your honor the u.s government is working with a former jihadist in this case so they're paying a former jihadist to set my client up and this is wrong and he told him to shut up or he'd be sitting where his client was but it didn't matter because a washington post reporter in the back of the room ran with the story so i was faced with this complex issue where now the american muslim community thought i was an informant 
And I was an informant, but I was actually doing good. And uh, they painted me as someone who created a pot that I did not create, and I was under risk. The FBI had to move me from my home, and I was uh, asked if I wanted to be in protection. And I said no, and rather than uh, go into protection and go into hiding and be in fear, I just said, you know what, I'm going to start to take steps, and I'm just going to completely come out and talk about my life. And so about six months after that, I went public at the program on extremism at George Washington University, and I was hired as a research fellow. Because while I was radicalizing, I graduated from Columbia uh, University um, with a master's degree in international affairs. So I do have a research background as well. Right. And, and um, yeah, so I went public six months after I was outed by the Washington Post. So it's this weird dynamic where now I interact with the counterterrorism community, I interact with the intel what I call the intelligentsia, like the people that are affiliated with countering violent extremism and counterterrorism. They could be from non-governmental organizations that operate in Pakistan all the way to like people that are doing local stuff. I also interact with for, with jihadists because I conduct one-on-one -on -one interventions with with people that believe exactly like I used to believe, and I still now have good relationship with the American Muslim community. I'm still mosqued Muslim, practicing Muslim, and so yeah. I mean, now I'm able through all of those engagements with all those overlapping but at the same time unique and independent networks, able to understand the importance of uh, complexity and creativity because it takes a certain level of creativity to flip flop back and forth between does, the two. Does, does that worry you that, uh, that somebody potentially as eloquent as you might drag you back into some uh, unwanted ideologies? No, I think I've deconstructed it to a degree where I realized that the ideological affinity that I held was largely a projection of my internal hate and personal turmoil. I think that the ideologies that we adopt when we're traumatized can be like drugs because after I de-radicalized and changed my affinity for the ideology, I actually didn't realize it, but I was left right back off to that scared, traumatized kid who was numbing his pain with drugs and alcohol in order to survive. The ideology simply became the drugs and the alcohol because the drugs and the alcohol was starting to tear me apart as a youth. Right. And so I actually relapsed for the first time in 17 years, which was actually a part of my de-radicalization process and is now a part of my recovery, is the fact that I relapsed on cocaine after 17 years of sobriety because I thought I was changed. So I figured that I could go back to hanging out and forgot that I was an addict. And right. now I see ideology and extremism largely as an addiction right. and treated as right. such too. Right. And, and, and you know, earlier you, you spoke about um, how... You, you know, certain before you became radicalized, certain view of the Western world. Mm -hmm. um, now, you know, you you mention enlightenment principles, etc. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. So, you know, how easy slash hard was it for you to come back to the Western way of, uh, you know, society? I mean, I think anybody who objectively steps away from themselves and starts to look at their own bias and reflects upon the objective principles that the Enlightenment represents can get around uh, emotional allegiances that are unjustified. And one of the things that looking at Enlightenment philosophy does for you is it allows you to recognize the tribalist nature of history and the way that the Enlightenment philosophers were able to overcome sectarian strife largely based upon religion and to consider all of what is considered sacred as, as, as questionable and then from there to develop this idea of individual liberty and freedom. And I think 
in every objective sense the development that has occurred since then and the exponential advancement and evolution of whether it's technology or whether it's creativity or whether it's art or whatever level you measure it and it's clear and it's evident I just fear that in some ways we're trekking backward into uh, totalitarianism and authoritarianism again and that I think that the degree to which we do so uh, will correlate uh, to uh, progress and 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 to f you know continuous uh, development. So it's not hard. You just have to get away from yourself and uh, step outside and look at what's what's very clear and evident. From a religious perspective, you mentioned you're a practicing Muslim. Mm -hmm. Do you consider yourself a reformist Muslim, mm. or do, do do you just do you have a because there's there are multiple movements sure. there's progressive Muslims sure. out there doing range of things. One of the great things about believing in individual liberty is that you can have your own interpretation of Islam, and that can be your Islam. And I don't push it on anyone else, but I love to talk about the religion, and I find myself in conversations with Salafi jihadis, Salafists, modernists. And I have different, completely my own nuanced views. Right. And I and, and absolutely continue to study the dogma, continue to study the history, continue to, continue to study the jurisprudence. And I'm fascinated by it um, because it, uh, it is still something that I consider to be divine to mm. a degree, but also flawed. And I think seeing the flaws in your ideology allows you to be okay with the flaws inside of yourself. Um, how do you view there is a growing movement of ex-Muslim mm -hmm. yes. uh, activists? Are they helping the cause or making it harder? I think it depends on what the cause is. So their cause is uh, oftentimes, in my opinion, although I can't see intentions, um, money and fame. Right. Uh, and uh, the problem is, is that those that do it, which, who have a nuanced understanding of the religion, are basically zero. So none of these people that are ex-Muslims tends to really have a scholarly background in any field of science. And I just believe that that's dangerous. Be when you say a scholarly understanding of science, what do you mean by that? So I really do think that in Islam it's a very unique religion in the sense that there are sciences attached to it that are not necessarily attached to other religions. Okay. So with regard to Quran, we only have one Quran in Islam. Sure. Right, and they're a Shiite, a Sunni. They read the same Quran letter for letter. No difference. Number of verses. Everything is the same, and it's considered the word of God. Very different uh, mentality to hold something as the word of God versus the inspired word of God is a fundamental distinction, and 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 and, and requires a lot of uh, justification and defense. And so, what we have that is the most. Um, the closest thing to other religions in Islam is the science of hadith or a hadith, which are the narrations attributed to the Prophet Muhammad. It is oftentimes the hadith that are the most problematic, right? So for the fundamentalists, the hadith are considered akin at the same level of the Quran. There's no real distinction between the two. And for the ex-Muslim, the isolated hadith that they quote to point to the fact that the Quran must not be true are even by those fundamentalist Muslims oftentimes held to be what we call da'if or weak. So without understanding the science of hadith, then one should not really comment on the textual validity or comment on the text of the 
of 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 the religion, right? It's very problematic, and it's difficult to do so in a Muslim world that considers the epistemological basis of a large portion of what they do and believe in to be theological, as opposed to rational. Within the religion, and the, you, you mentioned that how unique Islam as a religion is, because mm -hmm. it is not just the religion, because it embedded in the religious text is governance you know it's a complete much, it's a complete way of life it's yes. a, yeah. yeah so uh, in the western way of uh, society we have uh, governance it, from a secular point of view where religion sits outside of that yes from a islamic point of view that cannot exist as such from a pure uh, uh, interpretation of the quran from an Islamist perspective, but yeah. not from a general layman Muslim perspective, right. or from even someone who's scholarly. So, for example, if you know the hadith and you know how to point to it, there's a statement where the Prophet, uh, may peace and blessings be upon him, is walking through Medina, which is a town north of Arabia, of, of Mecca, which is known for its date production. And he points to a date tree and he says, why are you separating the, 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 the sexes? Right? Don't do this. Right? And so they think that, okay, he's Prophet, so they foul it, and the next year the yield goes down. Right, as a consequence of obeying the Prophet and his recommendation. And they say, look, Ya Rasulullah, we, we, we followed your order and we're not getting as many dates as we got last year. And he says, I am a messenger that's brought to you to teach you religion. I am not one who knows about the worldly affairs, so don't follow me in the worldly matters. This alone is secularism. And this is a, 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 a hadith that all of the scholars in Islam attribute to the Prophet. So what the jihadists do is they take a word called hakimiyah, and hukum, they say, refers to legislation. But the law's hukum, his legislation, has to do predominantly, if you read fiqh, jurisprudence in Islam, how to wash for prayer, how to pray five times a day, when to wake up in the middle of the night to pray, how to treat your wife, how to clean your teeth. And then there's a little piece on governance and how to punish people that commit crimes. And the reality is the overwhelming majority of those narrations are questionable. So it's almost as if they were inserted as this society grew after the time of the Prophet Muhammad and needed governance. And at that time, by consensus of the fact that the hadith were not written down for several hundred years, we have people saying the Prophet said such and such, the Prophet said such and such for political reasons. And so there needed to be some way to implement certain things. And so you just simply say the Prophet said such and such, I'm the Khalifa, and the Prophet said such and such, and this scholar says it, and this exists. And so I'm not so sure that there was ever any prophet that even governed. I think the prophet created a society that was uh, bottom up, uh, where governance arose as a need, but where really what the prophet did was he created a groundswell of support. I look at Islam as a literacy movement. Uh, I look at Islam as a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a paradigm shift in human consciousness. It a seems as you have a certain view of Islam, as you earlier pointed out, is a is an interpretation that you have come to, a scholarly interpretation that you have come to, but majority mm. of the people that Practicing. follow the practice yeah. may mm -hmm. not see it that way. Absolutely. The, the majority certainly would not. They consider uh, Islam a complete uh, way of life, yes. How do you overcome that? Because, uh, you know, there's Pew research data in, in developed countries where majority uh, following the faith uh, have some problematic views f with regards to homosexuality and certain, uh, you know, matters that uh, in the West we consider there shouldn't be a negative view. So how do you combat that? 
So my uh, objective in my life's work, I don't think yet has gotten to the point where I look at the macro. Right. So my concern is the not necessarily the radical cognizance of the collective, but the risk that those that are cognitively radicalized might take the tipping point toward violent extremism. And so, but I will say that at a level of prevention, those that are having those conversations and um, addressing those concerns are doing the work that we need to do for the long term. I'm more worried about preservation of safety for the short term, but I'd love to get more involved in that space, but you have to choose your battles and you have to choose your specialties. If I start to press back against these, which I agree with, I mean, I totally agree that these are irrational positions and that they're also um, not necessarily because these people know anything about Islam. I, I believe that the majority of people that hold these popular opinions don't know much about Islam. In fact, I know that they don't know that much about Islam, but they assume something that is largely cultural and has been passed down. And the only way to really eradicate that is to continue to promote things like liberal education and critical thinking at a macro level. Which is a good point to now talk about. You have a counter-jihadist magazine. Mm-hmm. One it- from our activities. I run an organization called Parallel Networks. We do an array of different international and domestic initiatives. But we have a domestic countering violent extremism, ecosystemic approach. And in the same way that we use the jihadist magazines to uh, radicalize and recruit, we now created a counter English language jihadi magazine that outdoes their graphic design quality, restructures and deconstructs the ideology, and then poses an alternative uh, macro view or perspective that we call our dialogue of civilizations model. We use it as a tool for one-on-one intervention, as a curriculum guide for um, conducting uh, community level and individual level uh, discussions. And we are doing the very first public counter-narrative campaign in Telegram where uh, jihadists are flourishing now as a result of being kicked off of Twitter and Facebook. And we use it to combat and to argue with the hubs of their network to show that we can refute them and to screenshot that so that that gets disseminated wherever those radicalizers and recruiters operate and also to present pathways to people so that they can engage with me and other former extremists that work with the organization to uh, get an intervention that can take them out of support for the movement. You mentioned how you are challenging the narrative in a place like um, uh, Telegram. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are existing jihadist magazines. Yes. Uh, you know, uh, The Beacon, uh, Rumea, mm-hmm. they're, they're like really high end magazines. How do you challenge them and how do you uh, get to that readership? Well, first of all, they can't have them because I created them. So I can, I'm, I'm the only person that can take back the template. Right. Um, and then secondarily, we. Um, I'm very good at networking and recruiting, so I have constantly, uh, as I speak and as I uh, engage in what I do, I constantly recruit talent um, in the same way that I put together the network that built them. Uh, I put together an antithetical network now full of graphic designers that are you know, more creative. I mean, if you look at one of their magazines, one thing you noticed when you look at the uh, state of the traumatized and the uh, radical brain is an inability to... Uh, understand complexity and it comes out in the art form so it's very blocked it's very square Um, what we do is we play with the imagery in a way that um, is is far is is very superior and then truth be told um, having been an expert in the Salafi Jihadi doctrine and ideology it's 
and having dissected it and deconstructed it, it's uh, very easy for me to um, to do so with the words that I write in the in, in the content of the magazine. And I have yet to meet a Salafi jihadi that has uh, been able to uh, put forth any competent refutation of it every time they try to address even one of the articles in it we tear them apart um, to the point where they have started to say on telegram that they're not even allowed to uh, interact with me uh, because they know they have no response to me and that's good that's a that that's that's an indicator that um that uh, their silence is essentially an inability to counter uh the our narrative so it's um, good. Uh, activist and um intellectuals um, in the West, um, like Ayan Hisi Ali, Sam Harris, they say the term Islamophobia mm-hmm. uh, is preventing mm-hmm. from people having nuanced conversation. Wh- wh- where do you stand with regards to... Uh, I-, I don't think anyone can really say anti-Muslim bigotry yeah. is, is non-existing. That's right. an actual problem. Yeah. That's a different but term. Ter- you know, terminology like Islamophobia, yeah. is it preventing from conversation from happening? Absolutely. Um, one thing that we do know about reported hate crimes is that typically uh, the majority of them are fabricated. And so one of the problems with Islamophobia is if it, it can get you attention, and it happens all the time, and it, of course it's not popular to say this, but what you can do is you can portray a term that can become adopted by a community that perceives itself to be under attack. And again, this is a component of radicalization. You perceive yourself to be under attack because you are a Muslim or because you are Islam and they are fearful of you. But in fact, uh, I think that there is uh, every reason to be fearful because of what we talk about with the natural predisposition of the human being to be tribalist in their interpretations. And you have real Muslims committing acts of terrorism. And I don't think that there is anything wrong with people being fearful of that phenomenon. And if you conflate fear of jihadists with fear of general Muslims, then what you're suggesting is that uh, you're, you're basically adopting the same narrative that the jihadists adopt, that you're not allowed to practice your religion, and that they hate the true religion of Islam. And it's very popular to be espoused in the mosque Muslim community. We should also ask unmosked Muslims what they feel about the term Islamophobia, because all unmosked Muslims that I talk to think it's a racket and that it promotes a victimization uh, discourse that uh, only facilitates a a grievance that's unreal and unacknowledged. And um, it's a shame because it simply is true. If objectively you measure the status of American Muslims, for example, there's really no recognition of this, but American Muslims outperform the rest of America at educational attainment, at levels of assimilation, at levels of income, Uh, At almost every level of success, they outperform. Well, there's got to be a reason for that, and it's called freedom, democracy, and capitalism. And um, there's really limited ability to acknowledge that when you are portraying uh, yourself as a victim. And this is not the majority view, but unfortunately, the way the mosque communities run, whether it's here, Britain, Australia, or Canada, is a very small group of popular, prominent, activist-oriented imams control that narrative. And it serves their 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 own agenda, so I don't agree with the the use of the term. Right. Um, the other people that use that term are well-meaning liberals who are worried for a minority. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, where do they place in this uh, in this narrative? Because they want to help. Yeah. Well, they think they want to help, but they will make the problem worse, and that's typically the case with far leftist 
total, reverse totalitarianism in general. They make good bedfellows. So in the American uh, ambit, uh, American Muslim mosque community in particular used to vote predominantly conservative up until the Iraq War. And then it was really the transition into the Obama era where the American mosque Muslim community developed a more activist sort of far leftist allegiance with the progressive factions of the Democratic Party. And the allegations were definitely that, that basically the American Muslim vote is valuable, right? And also what it allows you to do is it allows you to portray the other, which in this case is the right wing and the conservatives, as waging this war against Islam. And so it's really beneficial to espouse bigotry. The problem is, is that it's unnuanced and it creates more polarization. And we're witnessing that um, with the uh, the accounts of people like Ilhan Omar, their manifestations as young people of this 15-year period post-World War Terror, post-invasion of Iraq, where this allegiance unfolded. And the narrative is not Muslim or Islamic at all. It's actually far-leftism synthesized with a mosque sort of interpretation. And it's really strange because they contradict each other in so many ways. Uh, the mosque American Muslim community certainly doesn't advocate homosexuality, for example. But for far leftists, their first critique of the right is that they are anti, uh, that they are they are they are homophobic. Um, in so many ways, there's cases like that that are that that are just absolutely outlandish. But it's convenient political bedfellows. You mentioned far right extremism, which is there is a growing worry globally in mm -hmm. the West sure. that uh, this might end up becoming uh, far worse than what it is right now in America um, you can you, there are pockets of this and there's been a number of violent incidents including the Christchurch incident mm -hmm. um, you you made a few comments during our cafe classroom explaining that you can see the parallels very clearly mm -hmm. can you explain that a little bit more so Speaking and staying in the same vein of one manifestation of this problem in the way that we're addressing it is the allegiance between the American Muslim community claiming Islamophobia and its allegiance with the far leftist community claiming Islamophobia. Because when we wanted to attack the problem that was jihadism, uh, the far leftist community allied with the American Muslim community in preventing every step towards developing programs and initiatives that could counter violent extremism. Now, they want to do the very same things that they opposed with the far right because it's the other. So now we want to discuss Donald Trump as a white supremacist. And in fact, he make America great again may have tints of white nationalism in it. But what happens is there's a conflation in the general population that conflates everyone with a MAGA hat as your next neo-Nazi you know, mass shooter. And that creates the hysteria which galvanizes a further polarization of the domestic landscape. And that paranoia actually arms and serves as a recruitment fodder for the right-wing extremists in the same way that we would go out and we would wave a black flag and we would get on TV by saying heinous things. CNN would come and they would follow us and it was a very controversial story. And it would portray ourselves as brave actors willing to stand up to perceived grievances. So we were only a very fringe of a fringe. But when you talk about doing that on a grand scale with a group like the Proud Boys or Patriot Prayer or something like this, you're not talking about groups that represent people in the hundreds. You're talking about groups that represent people in the tens of thousands. And those sympathies are going to ring true and resonant. And so when they're calling for the takedown of material now, they 
were really quick to point out the uh, the the counter consequence or the, the the counterintuitive consequences of restricting speech in my era they were very quick to point that out but now they want to do it with regard to people like Sam Harris for example who as controversial as he might be certainly does not call for shooting up schools but what happens when you ostracize him and you kick him off or you deplatform him is the conspiracy theory narrative is confirmed so in so many different ways we're replicating the same mistakes the problem is is the degree of threat is so much higher amongst far right-wing extremists in the west and the real problem is is that in order for democracy and liberalism to sustain itself it can't function in a polarized environment because policy change will be too drastic and too different between the differing opinions and the increasingly radicalizing nature of the far left and the far right and them becoming mainstreamed as a result of these conversations that are going on between each uh, polarized milieu is the porous borders between radicalism and the far right are starting to blur. So Breitbart has taken over for Fox and MSNBC has taken over for CNN. And as that gets further and further apart, there's no way you can have a functioning democracy because the minute one party takes over for the other, the tearing down of the policies that took place over the previous four years takes two years into the next administration. Democracy can't work like that. There's no way that it can sustain itself. And so ultimately it would malfunction. In a, in a way, um, some of the ultimate expectations of jihadists are coming true yes. within yeah, well, the objective is, again, a war of attrition. Right. And uh, if you look at doctrine like the management of savagery, which is a very serious strategic document of ISIS, they talk directly about polarizing uh, societies everywhere. That in chaos and polarization where two sides battle against each other, what happens is, is they malfunction. And then the Islamic State can come in and fill the void in that chaos. And in the West, we used to promote it. Like We consciously knew that by arming the anti-Islamic bloggers and activists like Pamela Geller, who was later targeted by an ISIS supporter for having everybody draw Mohammed Day um, in uh, Carswell, Texas, um, that we were creating the anti-Islamic sentiment that would allow us to paint a picture that these activists were representative of the war against, of the West against Islam. So that's what happens with Christchurch. Christchurch killer comes the next day. Abu Hassan al-Muhajir releases a statement from ISIS that says Muslims everywhere need to take revenge. And 30 days after that, Sri Lanka happens and they attack churches and kill random churchgoers in a, in a retaliatory way. So the reciprocal nature between the two is totally beneficial. But when we talk about far right wing extremist sentiment in the West right now and those willing to take up arms and commit acts of terrorism, we're talking about very, 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 very small fringe minorities. When we talk about Muslims in the world today, as opposed to on September the 11th, we're talking hundreds of thousands of people that uh, not just empathize with Salafi jihadists, but that are fully committed to their vision and willing to fight and to die, not all willing to blow themselves up into marketplaces, but certainly willing to take up arms uh, in a manner that would defend uh, the very ideological principles of ISIS. So we're dealing with a fundamentally difficult situation where if far right-wing extremism renders democracy inoperable, or our reaction to far-right-wing extremism renders our democracies inoperable and polarization continues to exacerbate 
and the multilateral institutions and the liberal world order that we've built up starts to fragment, what you have in the background is the increasing threat of authoritarian regimes, that in China, that in Iran, and that in Russia. And the jihadists will simply assume that that would lead to a World War III type scenario, where in the aftermath of that massive global polarization, which would be a reflection of domestic polarization itself, they would just come and they would resurrect their khilafah in the aftermath in the ashes. And it actually happened during the time of the Prophet Muhammad. So they point towards the history of the Prophet Muhammad when the Persians and the Romans were waging war against each other while Arabia was nothing but a backwater. And here comes the Prophet Muhammad and he's teaching for 23 years the religion of Islam and cultivating the Islamic State while the Persians and the Romans are fighting each other. And then within a hundred, it's because their war of attrition against each other renders their own civilization sort of malfunctionate. Uh, in the aftermath of the Prophet Muhammad's death, within 80 years, you have the spread of Islam from into China and all the way into to to uh, to Spain and 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 to Western Europe. So the jihadists actually believe that the next stage of their Armageddon or apocalyptic uh, trek is. As the Prophet described, you will ally with al Rum, the people of Rome, the West, uh, to fight a common enemy from behind you, right? And then will come what they call Malhama, which is, in, to translate it, means a battle of Lahem, which means a battle of flesh, massive battle of flesh. And from that uh, will come the, uh, the final call. Now, you can read their doctrine. Uh, they believe that they will ascend to global superiority within the next... It used to say 12 years. Now they have actually shortened that. They believe within the next 5 to 10 years they'll be uh, in, in, in control and, uh, and descendant in the global arena. So That sounds chilling. Mm-hmm. If you look at the West right now, the conversation you mentioned about uh, deplatforming, uh, a fair number of um, right-wing commentators, some are provocateurs, uh, some have said awful things. They have been deplatformed from all the large platforms. And you have places like your 4chan, 8chan, mm-hmm. Telegram, mm-hmm. and all these places now, The Gap. Um, all these places have given them a place to thrive. Mm-hmm. Um, so lots of people in the West are now just primarily focused on that. What you're saying is while that is happening, there is this much larger problem that hasn't been dealt with. Mm -hmm. So the uh, appetite for the war on terror is waning. And now at a geopolitical level, our foreign policy is focused on power state competition again. Why? Because the liberal world order, what we don't want to tell our people is, if we look at economic data, uh, the next cyclical downturn, which appears to be on the horizon, we don't have monetary or fiscal policy that can correct it. At the same time, we have a polarizing uh, cultural milieu and uh, status at home that certainly can't be rectified with any foreseeable uh, solution. We have no politician or we have no top-down approach that will rectify that. We have a cultural issue of polarization that no one really knows how to address and deal with. So at the same time, we have domestic uh, problems. I mean, Brexit is largely a reflection of this question about what, you know, what, what, what the liberal world order means and whether or not we want to sustain the one that we built post-World War II. We have the Chinese and Russia and Iran thinking about building high-speed maglev trains through Syria, which uh, they've stuck us in the same way we stuck the Russians in a war of attrition. You know, back in the 80s in Afghanistan, they've stuck us in Iraq in the same manner, and they are sort of waiting for things to collapse, but they don't want them to collapse overnight. 
slowly but surely China is coming out of its confines. And that's a world order that I don't want to live in and that I don't think many people want to live in. But I don't think anybody, I think people take it for granted. I mean, especially like millennials and Gen Zers. I mean, they were born in very coddled historical circumstances where they couldn't fathom a world that's not full of continued technological and economic progress. But we are in fact facing dire straits when we look at the confluence of factors, fiscal, financial, economic, cultural, political, we are in a crisis. And the jihadists are still flourishing and thriving because now we're worried more about China, Iran, and Russia uh, than we are about them. So they're just taking a vacation and uh, slipping off into the clandestine shadows and uh, they'll be back when the time is appropriate. They'd love to see a war with Iran. Um, and that would be completely fitting for the way that they outline their strategy. So how do... Well, <laughs> that's an incredibly dark picture of the world state uh, that you've painted, but I don't think it's based on, uh, you know, some paranoia. It seemed to be like when you paint it like that, it, it starts to make some sense. So how should America and overall the West handle what's happening in Iran or Syria, mm -hmm. basically the Middle East? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think we have to um, realize that you can't change a society from top down. So that was the blunder that we made in Iraq. But you can plant the seeds and the intellectual infrastructure that can preserve the liberal world order. So when you defend freedom, democracy, and liberal values, when you realize that you can't de-platform without having a counter-effectual outcome, because liberalism is based upon the principle of being able to say things that as long as they don't advocate for the violence of another are protected. So you can't betray the very standards that you claim to uphold. And every single level that you look at an intervention that is a top-down intervention, it, it, it fails. So we have to preserve this. And there are um, people all over the world that understand this. What we have to do is we have to get power into their hands. And what I mean by power into their hands is If we're going to spend a trillion dollars a year on military operations is directly related to terrorism, and we spend 0.01% of that on alternatives to military power, we really need to look at why are there more Salafi jihadists today than there were at 9-11, right? So we need to project ideas. We live in a very ideological uh, state where we're all interconnected. All of humanity can hear what each other is saying. And there are people that are sort of galvanized and motivated by extremism, but we don't motivate those that are galvanized and motivated by freedom and liberalism in the same way. We can how do you, how do you, uh, the specific type of uh, Islam you just mentioned uh, is promoted uh, and galvanized by one particular country. Yeah. That's uh, true, to, uh, to a good degree. And, and they spend closer to what, $400 billion dollars buying Australian... Yes. Uh, no, sorry, uh, uh, not just Australian, actually, uh, weaponry from America, right? $400 yes. billion dollars over a less than a decade. So, you know, when, when, as you mentioned, there's economic downturns and all those sort of things happening. When you have one country that's able to pretty much spend that kind of money, mm -hmm. it's a bit hard to really challenge them afterwards. Yes, because you, I agree from an ideological point of view, but yes. from a uh, 
politician's point of view, we have, uh, the country has this massive budget deflect. Okay, here's some money coming in. So let's yeah. take that money. That's mm-hmm. the short-term well, they'll, approach. They'll, 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 they'll buy your weapons, even if you attack uh, uh, contingencies upon it. So the overthrow of the Mohammed Morsi regime in Egypt is a perfect example. Uh, by our congressional law, we should not have been able to sustain military aid to Sisi because it was certainly the overthrow of a democratically elected uh, government. We could have uh, negotiated uh, ways around that. And the Obama administration turned a complete blind eye. Interestingly enough, the Trump administration actually stopped doing business and sending military aid to Egypt on the condition that it released some of its journalists. So we can actually use the dependency, especially now. Saudi Arabia needs us more than they ever needed us before. Saudi Arabia can't fight Iran. Saudi Arabia can't handle Iran. And Iran is getting increasingly aggressive, whether we believe it or not. The left is allied with Iran's narrative. But they clearly are just recently armed Houthis with drone technology that was able to bomb an oil field and cut off one-fifth of the world's oil supply in the blink of an eye. This is the future of war. Saudi needs us. The reform in Saudi Arabia has to happen at a level where it's not top-down, though. We have to make sure that they understand that they can preserve their culture and their traditions and that their people can choose. And in fact, Saudis themselves would probably choose the Wahhabist version of Islam for now, but we should still make certain that people that are espousing other alternative views of Islam are not oppressed because over time ideas change. Right, and you see the success of particular systems, and 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 things and and things would work out. So there are things that we can do at concrete policy levels with regard to changing nature, because they need those weapons, and we need them to need those weapons, and we should ally with Saudi Arabia. They have been an ally with us for decades and decades and decades, and they were really what we created because we armed religious fundamentalism in Saudi Arabia as a way to counter uh, Jamal Abdel Nasser and Nasserism, which was Arab socialism, which was allied in large part with uh, Russia. But that was a consequence of other decisions that we could have preserved liberalism and access to multilateral institutions because Nasser only turned towards Russia when we didn't authorize the funding of the Aswan Dam project through the World Bank. So all of these things can be understood when we really go into the nuance of the historical trajectory of policy. The Middle East has always been the linchpin of the global order, and we're getting our asses kicked. And um, we definitely need to take a drastic, immediate turn to policy. None of the politicians or the political parties have uh, an agenda uh, to, to, to truly address that. Um, there's clearly things that we can do. I think uh, just like many reformers, you have an enormous task in front of you and uh, it, it seems as uh, it's nearly impossible but I just wanted to uh, say you, <laughs> the, human, the human story has, has, has been one of perceived catastrophe on the horizon and then for some reason the resilience of the human, uh, of the human experience always, always comes true so now we live in a world where people can hear podcasts like these and uh, all over, right? So we need to continue to espouse these ideas and there's many people that are espousing things that are similar to them. As long as we preserve the ability of human beings to express themselves and to speak from their heart, I, th- I, I remain optimistic. Right. I right. think we'll be okay. Have you ever considered... Um, uh, so your current approach, uh, are you working with governments to uh, help with 
the issues that you just spoke about? So we want we want to operate in this space with regard to the domestic scene. Mm -hmm. We're trying to convince the United States government that there's one thing that government needs to do, and that is to provide an alternative to intervention and interdiction, meaning an alternative to the investigation of an FBI officer. If you see someone who's perceived to be radicalized, we need our authorization and funding to conduct precision-guided interventions. But that the government getting involved in the space of prevention and the advocacy of ideas is definitely problematic. So we're going to government in one space, intervention and recidivism reduction. But we're going to the philanthropic community, the corporate sector, to try to convince them the imperative nature of doing something to arm grassroots and collective consciousness approaches to um, waging uh, or combating uh, hate and extremism. The epidemic uh, or the epidemiology of the threat is apparent, but no philanthropist or corporate social responsibility office or high net worth individual has taken it upon themselves. We need to start to see the threat posed by violent extremism in, in, in short, in the same way that we see uh, malaria or cancer or uh, other things that we're all too willing to address from a public health perspective. At the international level, the same is true. And there's a way to address this. We need to think holistically. We need to think ecosystemically. One of the organizations that we're hoping to partner with is called Ideas Beyond Border, Faisal Said Mutar, who I'm sure you'll probably have or, or have had uh, in your ambit. Um, this is an individual whose story is impeccable. He's got a message that is reaching large numbers of people, and he needs uh, to be promoted and to propped up. But the programming and the mechanisms and the design of the initiatives and the programming, that's what we advise on. So myself and partners that think a lot like me, we, 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 we like to look at how these ideas can be conveyed in ways that are truly effective and that you can allow a network that you build to become a movement, so to say. Um, I'm conscious of time, so there are lots of other thoughts ideas in my head but uh, thank you so much for giving the time you know it, you've been with us for a little while today um, I wish you all the best um, I it's there places that people who are listening to this podcast can find you and more information about you the central hub of our domestic ecosystemic uh, approach to combating hate uh, extremism and polarization is housed at lightuponlight.online um, that's where we that's where we house uh every component of our program. So you can hit the contact button there and, uh, and reach out if you want, or you can just view the material that we publicize and the, and the work that we do, which is hosted on that website. Brilliant. Cool. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Yep. Take care.